why don't everybody, not just Jason, Kenny, or Trudeau, why don't people just come out and say what's really there is y'all don't give a fuck about indigenous rights. And what that equates to is y'all don't care about Indians, whether they live or die. So let's blow up the mountains and just cause more of them to die. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Back to the Forgotten Corner podcast. Uh, we are very proud to announce that we are now officially part of the Harbinger Media Network, a cross-country network of progressive podcasts attempting to bring you uh, a voice we all desperately need. Jeremy, my co-host, how are you today? Doing very well. Yesterday, I uh, had to uh, go to the mall to make a return, and. Uh, it, uh, that's it a non-essential. That seems like a non-essential activity. Yeah, well, none of the rules make sense. Any like they really don't make sense now. They didn't make sense in March, but now it's just like, like especially if you look at Ontario, it's like stay at home, uh, but stores are open for like curbside pickup and. Yeah, I mean, just none of it makes sense. It's a Kafkaesque nightmare. Um, but yeah, I, I I went to a mall. I, of course, masked up. And uh, yeah, it was really... Uh, it almost reminded me of like Dawn of the Dead, you know? Yeah. Just being in a mall while like the world crumbles around you. Um, but... Did you see people uh, out there that are trying to equate this whole scenario to that movie will smith's movie i am legend no because I, I, I am legend took place in 2021 and the the thing that took everyone over was a, a vaccination that went wrong oh really yeah yeah so that's like the whole that's the plot of that movie and so i've seen people like did you know and it's like yeah that's right we're gonna fucking do this like will smith movies are predicting the future now you're right but anyway. Yeah, well, Men in Black is true. 100%. Like, that's 100%. all real. It's, it's a documentary. That's right. That's right. I guess I should say that my name is Scott Schmidt. I never say that at the beginning of the show anymore. I don't think anybody cares, but I'm also a co-host. Yeah, don't worry about it. Are, are you new here? <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes I feel that way. Mo Cranker, editor, producer, all things in between. Good friend. How are you today? I am doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Man. I'm fine. Okay. Like it's so robotic. Tell one us these, about your week, Mo. Yeah, one of these days he's going to come in. He's like, I got to tell you, I'm not doing very fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fine. Normal. I am normal, which is good. You're the least from normal, but like you're, you're not very close. To I'm my normal, which yeah, is you're on very... par for you, which yeah. is something else anyway. All right. Yeah, I, we should have like a Mo episode where we interview Mo, so the listeners like is that like is that like a like when Family Guy does a Meg episode? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't put it that way. I would say Mo 
O is more like Brian. He Except he talks a lot. Yeah, that's right. Don't they, kill, you get don't to they kill Brian off? They brought him Whoa, back. People spoiler. got upset. People spoiler. got mad. They brought uh, him back. We're in, um, we're in spoiler territory here. That's right. That's right. Do you guys want to get on with the show? Yes. <laughs> Mo hates this part more than anybody, I think. So anyway. All right. Well, anyways, I think we have a really good episode today and we should probably get into it um, because uh, as we uh, try to do, we're going to um, be pretty informative today, I think. And we're going to talk about something that just isn't getting enough attention, especially at a time when we have pandemics going on um, and everybody sort of has their own individual thing that is uh, bringing them down or, or causing hurdles for them in life. And uh, so hopefully this can bring some attention to something that is very important. Our guest this week is a member of the Kainai Nation in Southern Alberta, better known as the Blood Tribe. And though she now lives in Calgary, where she is a program manager at Mount Royal University and a mother of three, these days, Latasha Calfrobe has her focus squarely on a fight back home. The Grassy Mountain Coal Mine Project, an $800 million venture in Southwest Alberta's Crow's Nest Pass, was quietly given the go-ahead after a years-long process and approved by First Nations leaders across Treaty 7. However, Calfrobe says the people of the Blood Tribe, as well as others in Treaty 7, were not consulted about the project and are vehemently, vehemently against this 1,500-hectare mine expansion at the top of Grassy Mountain, just north of the town of Blairmore. Calfrobe says the project will not only cause irreversible damage to the local environment and water systems, but it will directly impact the Blackfoot people's entire culture. The Forgotten Corner is honored to have Latasha on the show this week, where we hope we can not only learn a lot about this new surge on coal mining and the fight to stop it, but also about Latasha, the Blood Tribe, and the Blackfoot way of life she is trying to protect. Latasha, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott, and thanks, Jeremy, for having me. Um, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to introduce myself a little bit more formally. Um, so, Oki Nisokwa, Nisto Anista Mutumakumotsaki. Nin anista gitogyapi, nixist anista saksi sanaki, nax anista agapi ginapiaki. My name is First Steels Woman. My English name is Latasha Kafrobe. And just like you'd mentioned, I am a member of the Blood Tribe, which is a one of the nations that makes up the Blackfoot Confederacy of Southern Alberta. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on today. Really appreciate you being here. And um... We've got a lot we really want to get into today because I know uh, there's we have a specific, obviously we talked about the Grassy Mountain Coal Project. We're going to get a lot into that today. But as we do on the Forgotten Corner, we do not let our guests get into uh, the thing that they are passionate about until they tell us all about themselves. And so we'd like to get a little bit of the synopsis of, of your life growing up because you grew up uh, in the Blood Tribe in Standoff, correct? Uh, yeah, so I grew up on the Blood Reserve. Um, I didn't directly live in Standoff. I actually lived closer to a um, small group of homes called Moses Lake, um, which is right outside um, the town of Cartson there. So still on the Blood Reserve. Um, yeah, that's where I come from. Can you tell us just a little bit about what childhood was like growing up? Because we, we know that we're, we'll get to, you know, you went off to high school in Cardston, but just your, your early childhood, can you just give us a little idea of what that was like? 
Yeah, so I had two parents there. Um, we actually lived in Calgary for a bit when I was pretty young, and my father decided that um, the city wasn't a good place to raise um, raise his children. That he really wanted us to have those roots back in where we come from as Nisitipi people, as people of the blood tribe, um, and wanted us to have those deep connections back to our family and and really who we are. So he moved us back down um, to the blood reserve. We lived. Um, well, the Blood Reserve and Cartston really meet kind of just a road between the two. So we've lived in Cartston on the reserve kind of back and forth and really the area kind of bleeds together. Um, so my, my father is actually a well-known storyteller. His name is Marvin Caffro, Ben um, really spent a lot of his time revitalizing language and culture um, and really looking at the creation stories of how we came to be in this area as Nitsitibi, as Blackfoot people. Um, so growing up, I had the honor and privilege of, of hearing lots of those stories from him, um, hearing those stories from my grandmother, um, hearing those stories in the community and really um, growing up on the reserve really gives you that opportunity to see the beauty that is on reserve in both the people, the culture, the language, um, the landscape. Um, where where my house is actually situated is on the blood reserve is if you drive out, um, if you've ever been to Waterton, so to get to Waterton, you have to drive through Cartston along the highway there. Um, I'm actually like the third turn off once you get outside of Cartston. And so you can actually see my house from the highway right there. Um, that's where I grew up. And so you went to high school in Cardston. Um, what was that like? Because um, obviously uh, Cardston is like Mormon central. <laughs> yes, and, it is. Uh, I, I, I would imagine there's a pretty big, uh, even though you're only separated by a road, I, I feel like the cultural divide may be uh, pretty wide. Uh, so tell us a bit. Yeah, so I um, did most of my schooling in Cartston, actually. There was a couple years where I went um, on reserve to the Dutagit Subult Middle School and to the Kainai High School there. Um, but majority of my education was in Cartston, and that that's the way to put it. There's a huge cultural divide, both visibly um, and written into everything that is Cartston. So, you know, I'm thinking about my time at Cartston High School and just the things that teachers would say, um, not only to me, but the other First Nations children um, in, in the school, things like, oh, you're just gonna be stuck here anyways, or, you know, why are you even here if you're, you know, you're not gonna use it, you're not gonna follow up with school or anything, or just go home, <laughs> anything. Like they would just dismiss and dismiss and dismiss. And so it was challenging, you know, trying to, I come from a family that really values education and really values learning and lifelong learning. And so that constant divide of, you know, going to school in Cartston where they have these really negative assumptions about First Nations people, um, it, it was challenging to say the least. And, you know, I think that we, we forget where Southern, the, the mindset of Southern Alberta is that we could equate it to the Bible Belt in, in the US and really that exists in Southern Alberta, that that is Southern Alberta, that is Kurtzson, that is all the small towns around, you know, Raymond, um, Hinchcliffe, all those, yeah, all those kinds of places all carry that same mentality, um, which is, and it's interesting, you know, all of these towns are surrounded by First Nations communities um, and that tension is always there and really visibly and sometimes violently, um, you know, portrayed. So why, 
why do it then? Like you said, you were, you said yourself, you started school and locally and like Kainai has high school. So, so why not just finish high school at Kainai instead of going and dealing with that on an everyday basis? Like what was so good about Cardston high school? Well, I think this speaks to the reality of on-reserve schools and and the challenging thing is, you know, when I went to school on reserve, there was such a sense of community. You know, you're being taught by by people in your community. Um, everybody looks like you. It, it's great. Um, you know, there's there's culture in there. All of these wonderful things. Um, but unfortunately, the education, the quality of education by a Western standpoint, is is really low for on reserve schools. They're always pushed for resources. Um, you know, and I had a dream of pursuing post-secondary education and knowing that it would be really challenging to get into the school of my choice, um, you know, graduating from um, Kainai High School. So my parents as well thought that it would be best to go to school off reserve um, so that I could be able to follow those dreams of going into post-secondary. Do you have any, I mean, I, we've got lots to talk about today, but I just wondered, do you have any thoughts on like what what could be done to sort of try to reverse this trend where like we don't have, like you can't get the available education in your own communities with like the proper education without having to go um, somewhere else. Like, do you have any thoughts on that at all? Um, I've got lots of thoughts and, you know, I don't, I think there is some really amazing teachers on the blood reserve both from right right from preschool they have some amazing programs such as the language programs right where where children are learning blackfoot and english and all of these kinds of things right in the school and those things are really beautiful and i think that when we start to bring in culture into the schools like that it just creates such a beautiful place for children to learn um, unfortunately that funding to be able to do that isn't something that the government of Canada, the provincial government wants to fund in schools. They want you to learn math. They want you to learn this. They want you to do this without recognizing that, um, you know, we had education systems in place prior to Europeans ever coming to this area and that we want to re um, revitalize those things and put them back into our schooling systems. So, you know, we want to solve that issue. We got to bring the language and culture back into schools and really bring that spirit back to our children. Um, when we to, to have them set up to succeed and to thrive, um, both in Western culture and education and both in traditional knowledge. So where did you end up going to post-secondary school? Um, so I actually went to Mount Royal University and then I never left. I've been there since 2010. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, we have uh, the Mount Royal connection on this uh, podcast all the time, right? Because our uh, our Just Us co-host, uh, Dr. Roberta Lexier, is uh, associate professor there. So we kind of have a small ties to Mount Royal itself. Um, so what do you do at Mount Royal University now? And sort of was, was it just, you fell into it once you got to go into school there? Or? Yeah, so I went to school, um, you know, fresh off the reserve and 
being in school and being away from my community, it was kind of like, whoa, there is nobody here from the blood reserve. There is like the indigenous community and population at the time back in 2010 was super small. They had a indigenous student center, but it was, you know, dead a lot of times. There were still people on campus, but it was really hard to find them or to connect and build community, all that kind of thing. And just, you know, having the background that I did, it was always like, where's the Indians? <laughs> like, why is there no First Nations voices in my classes? You know, we're talking about Canada and growing up in a home that talked about treaties and our connections to land and talked about like the very inherent presence of Indigenous people, you know, throughout history. It's like, this was totally missing from my education at MRU. And so that kind of led me into like, just asking those big questions and asking, you know, um, most of my professors didn't like me because I was like, oh, how does this relate to First Nations people? How does this relate to the blood tribe? And they're like, well, it doesn't, you know, and I ended up in business. I have my degree in business and I can think of a time where I was, they were talking about businesses and business ventures and entrepreneurship. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like, how does this relate to on-reserve businesses and starting a business on reserve? And they're like, well, First Nations businesses aren't real business. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, no, we they do have real businesses. We are real people. And, you know, like that was just astonishing. So always questioning those kinds of things. And by asking those big questions and pushing things, um, I end up with a job at the university. They're like, here, tell us everything we need to know about Indians. And I was like, well, I can't. And you kind of got to bring in the community in order to do that. And found myself working with a, an instructor there, um, Dr. Liam Haggerty, who works in the Indigenous Studies Department. Um, who was asking those big questions as well about how do we indigenize and decolonize the academy and that's where where I fell into it um, both as a student and then started working and then like I said had some children to take care of in the middle of that and then just kind of never left. In, in over the past decade since you've been at MRU have you seen the um have you seen it become more inclusive of Indigenous perspectives? Has there been an improvement or is it sort of stuck in this old settler mentality that you, you know, just described when you first arrived there? I mean, I think there's some amazing work of individuals that is going on and there's some incredible work that's happening at MRU and um, like I said, some of my friends and colleagues are doing some incredible work and bringing in and making making sure and putting those Indigenous voices at the forefront. So we have, you know, elders coming into classes to teach about treaty instead of a white guy standing up teaching about treaty. Um, we have real people, real First Nations people talking from a real First Nations perspective in some classes, but that is not the norm. Um, the majority of the people within that institution still don't believe that this is a valid form of knowledge, still don't, you know, still carry those things. So it's still really up to individuals to lead that work. Can you tell us just a little bit about some of the current work you're doing there? Like you're the program manager. Um, tell me, tell us a little bit about some of the programs you're actually working on right now. Yeah, so I lead two programs. One is called Map the System Canada, and it's actually an international um, post-secondary research challenge for post-secondary students and it's housed out of the University of Oxford and I manage the Canadian leg of the competition 
and students are challenged to pick a complex issue, anything from climate change to missing and murdered indigenous women to anything that they're interested in and to take a systems approach to mapping out that challenge. Why does it exist? What's holding it in place? Who are the key stakeholders? What are the opportunity and gaps in that system? Um, so I oversee that. I get to you know, meet with students across Canada and see what they're interested in. Um, the other part of what I do, which is really the exciting part of my job is I run the Anita Basi Leadership Program, which is a brand new program that actually just launched last week, um, where I work with a cohort of four students from MRU cross-disciplinary um, and work to build decolonial leadership skills rooted in Indigenous knowledge um, to accompany their post-secondary education to hopefully set them up for success in fighting some of these large battles such as indigenous rights, protecting land, protecting water, um, all that kind of stuff. That's a good way to transition into the main topic we're here to discuss today, um, which is of course coal and uh, specifically, specifically. <laughs> specifically the Grassy Mountain project that uh, you've been organizing against. So, so, so tell us a bit about this, because this project has been in the works for quite some time. It's um, an Australian company that's trying to sort of uh, ram this mine um, down our throats. A little bit of numbers, it's settlers. the plan is to produce 4.5 million tons annually of metallurgical steel making coal for Asian markets. That's that's their, this company's plan is going to mine a bunch of coal, export it to Asia, and uh, basically yeah, this, de decapitate this mountain, as you've put it in the past. It's interesting that, um, and I'm just going off for a second, but I, I just want to highlight that we're not allowed to burn coal in Canada, but we're allowed to mine it and sell it to the third world and then blame them for like polluting. For, for their emissions. We to, yeah, we don't have to do anything about climate change because our emissions are only 2% of the world's. 100%. Meanwhile, we're, 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 fueling carbon emissions Ooh. in the third world and i i think that's Double a entendre. very uh, yeah yeah i but i think that says a lot um so latasha tell us how for first because i think the information is this project was about seven years in the making and can you tell us when you found about out about it how you found out about it as well, and then did you immediately jump in and, and get yourself involved once you heard about it? Yeah, so I actually only heard about this project um, at the beginning of November, I believe of, of 2020. Um, I had seen this quick snippet on the news where it was like something, something coal, and then that was it. You know, and I'm like braiding my son's hair in the morning being like coal, <laughs> like do we do coal in Alberta, <laughs> what? Like, I've never seen a coal mine. Um, like, is this like a big hole in the side of a mountain type deal? Um, and just kind of like left it and didn't really know what was going on. And I'm sure that's where a lot of Albertans are sitting right now being like coal, why are they talking about coal? Um, and later on that week, I was actually in a team meeting with my with my group there that works at Mount Royal University and another co-worker had brought it up and they're like, did you hear about these coal development projects? And I was like, 
no. And he was like, well, this is where it's located. It's located, you know, just a little bit north of Blairmore and the Crow's Nest Pass. And I was like, wait, like given the location of where it is, it's located within the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy. It's located in the Treaty 7 region. Like First Nations communities would have been notified. There's a duty to consult, like just a million questions running through my head. And I was like, there's no way that this could be happening without like me knowing about it. Like this would have been brought up in by you know either blood tribe chief and council there would have been some information about it and he was like oh here's the letter of support that was issued from the blood tribe and it's right on the riversdale resources um website and i was like what is going on here um and so yeah kind of jumped into action just doing an information grab from anywhere i could like what is going on and what the hell is coal mining and you know i think when we look at this this project specifically it's open pit coal mining it is not a hole in the side of a mountain you know where people are going in with little pickets chipping out rocks open pit coal mining is an extremely like invasive method of extracting coal they literally blow up the mountain <laughs> blow off at least kind of the top 800 feet of the mountain um, and then just kind of like drill in deeper and deeper and deeper or kind of burrow into the mountain um, to extract the coal <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it's cut the cut the head off and then burrow right down and empty out the insides too. Like it's obvious. And the funny thing is, funny again, like we say that on the show, not ha ha funny, funny awful kind of. But it's being billed as this new age coal mining, like this non evasive coal mining, and it seems like one of the most oxymoronic statements you could make. But that, if you if you hear from the perspective of these leaders in treaty seven because it was blood the blood tribe signed on to this but also five other bands and like the community of metis uh, metis communities as well in southern alberta i believe also signed on to this right so were they just sold on this new age thing and like they're whoa it must be safe uh no so i think well there's there's lots that's happening here so when First Nations, when a project such as this, you know, is brought up and the company goes and they start checking out the area, they start getting their leases and permits from the Alberta government or the Canadian government, it trickles this duty to consult. And that duty to consult um, relates to First Nations people where the government will identify all of the all of the First Nations communities in the area who might be impacted by the development projects. Um, and then they go and they're required to consult with the First Nations and hear all their perspectives and concerns. Um, and then it's kind of like, well, that's great. <laughs> and the project could go ahead or not go ahead, regardless of what you say, but we've heard your concerns. That's the duty to consult. That's the extent of consultation. And because they have consulted, um, you know, saying, hey, heads up, this mining company, you know, wants this area and we agree. Um, that kind of equates to consent by the eyes of the government. Um, and so when we look at these letters of endorsement by chief and council, we know that that's the extent of what is happening here is that somehow that equates to consent. And that doesn't, that the duty to consult does not equal community level consultation. It does not equal consent by the members of the blood tribe. And usually what's happening is that when the mining company comes, like you said, the first time that the Benga mining company came to the blood tribe was back in 2013. 
And the only information that is usually provided to communities is that that is provided from the mining company or that that is provided by the government of Canada or the provincial government. And so, yeah, those messages of like, coal is good, coal is clean. Um, that's all that's provided to First Nations community. And we know that those resources to do our own, um, you know, environmental impact assessments or research of, of land and testing water quality, we don't have the funds a lot of time because there is no funds in First Nations communities. We're always stretched to the bandwidth of, you know, we need a health center, we need this. Nobody has the time or effort to spend money on, let's test the quality of water and let's do all these things. There's, you know, we're always restricted for resources um, on First Nations communities oh and there is no such thing as clean coal just want to say that you know how they make clean how they how to make coal clean is you have to wash it with water and then you know you wash all the chemicals off and it goes back into the water and goes downstream to everybody else that's clean coal for you well and that's one of the that's kind of what i wanted to talk about next because we've talked about just even visually for for the people that live in the area you cut the top off the mountain it's paint it's just not going to look very good but environmentally this is where we started to get into the real problems of this new expansion of coal mining on the so-called eastern slopes of the rockies or whatever we're talking about like we're going to affect the wildlife, the general ecosystem in the area. Forget the fact that we're just extracting more fossil fuels at a time when we ought to not be doing that. Like the direct effect on the people in that area is obviously going to be very uh, big, right? Can you just talk about sort of the concern, the environmental concerns that, that the people in the area have? Yeah, so some of the environmental concerns is like with open pit coal mining, it is one, <laughs> one of the leading emissions to greenhouse gases, right? So it's like Canada has made these commitments to reducing all of our emissions. All right, let's open up these coal mines that are just going to skyrocket all of those emissions in southern Alberta. Um, but when they do, so when they blow up these mountains, it releases these harmful chemicals such as selenium and other toxic minerals that are um, embedded in these inside the mountains. It's releasing them into the air and into the water um, through leaching, through all these kinds of things that takes place um, when when they extract coal. Um, that will, you know, selenium, there's multiple things. It's poisonous to fish. It's also poisonous and toxic to humans. And long-term exposure to selenium could lead to things like losing your hair and losing your nails and has been known to cause birth defects in people. So then that leads into a public health crisis. Um, you know, the environmental impacts is we look at the ranchers that are standing up to these coal projects right now who are concerned about, um, you know, the the grasslands and how that's going to impact their cattle. We have environmental protection agencies standing up and saying, you know, water is the essence of life and without clean water, nothing else can grow, including plant and human life. We have people looking at greenhouse emissions and taking all that kind of stance from it. Um, and all of which is kind of still not really looking at what's gonna to happen to First Nations communities. Um, we know that these, whenever these kinds of development projects happen, the impacts are most severely felt by First Nations people. So you don't even have to look far. You look at Tech Mines, which is just on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. They have spent millions of dollars trying to um, clean up the selenium that is in those waters. 
they are actually being sued by you know our our friends across the border because we are sending them dirty water from those mines that they don't have the funds or infrastructure to to remove that there's been no they can't remove the selenium from the water and so now we're going to open up this coal mine here and put that into our water that goes all the way down to where you guys are in the forgotten corner of alberta right and the, the old man river watershed there um, provides essential water to over 270,000 um, Albertans, including the Begunny First Nation and the Kainai First Nation who are directly downstream. Well, and these were protections that are like decades in place, right? Like even, even dig happy Alberta knew 50, 60, 70 years ago, whenever it was these protections, I think it might've been Lougheed that put the protections in, but nonetheless, like the idea was like, okay, we, we do have to protect these watersheds and like, we have to make sure that that, so it's like, is this, is this just, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm asking an obvious question, but is this just an, like a direct result of the United Conservative government coming in and being like, Alberta's open for business? Because I do want to clarify this, this coal mine is an expansion, correct? Like it is an existing mine site already. Part of it is, yes. So this was a pre part of where the Benga mine will be was on a previously mined site um, that will be expanded and still have to do a lot of removal of the mountaintop there. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up the coal policy. So there was actually a longstanding coal policy in place in Alberta, you know, most commonly known as the 1976 coal policy that was introduced by Lougheed there. Um, and that made different classifications of land from from category one to four of like what areas are most essential that we protect where we restrict and prohibit open pit coal mining where we you know don't allow exploration all that kind of stuff that's been that's been there and that's why like as southern albertans we don't really see coal development projects we you know it's something of the past it's something that we put to rest um and now all of a sudden it's back so really sneakily, the Alberta UCP government in the middle of the COVID pandemic, um, they rescinded that policy without consulting anybody. No consultation was done with First Nations communities. No, consult no community consultation with general Albertans was conducted. Um, and like I said, they did this in the middle of the pandemic um, when everybody was terrified. So this coal policy was actually... Um, rescinded effective June 1st of 2020. And the first official announcement came out May 15th, only two weeks before. And like I said, this policy was in place and it restricted open pit coal mining. It restricted exploration, which is also really invasive. Like once a company is granted the right to explore the area, they're blowing up things already. They're building roads to get into these, you know, um, areas that need to be protected. And so when they rescinded that policy, they opened up these categories of land. Like I said, there was four different classifications where now only category one is protected. Um, and all the areas from category two, three, and four are now open for lease, for exploration, for all these things. And when the Alberta UCP government um, rescinded that policy, the next day, um, lots of these other coal companies such as Alan Coal, Cabin Ridge, Momentum Resources, they were granted exploration permits like within 24 hours of that policy being rescinded. The Alberta UCP government knew exactly what they were doing and put that sign there. We are open for business. Come and take our coal. 
let's break this down a little bit because the UCP, this is their, their mantra, right? Is like, we're about the economy and blah, blah, blah. And we all know it's just profit, profit, profit for the people, but we'll get into that a little bit later, but economically, if all of these leaders across treaty seven are signing on to this, they're obviously signing on to this because of the economic value that they believe it can bring to their area. Do you have any idea, like, do you have any knowledge of, of how much money they're claiming that this will mean for the blood tribe? Um, like, have they released these figures at all? Because I'm just guessing in your eyes, it kind of, it must feel like your own leaders are selling a piece of your soul. That's exactly what it feels like. Um, and really what this, when going through these public documents that I've, you know, been sorting through online um, that are part of the regulatory hearing process where they're like, oh yeah, there's going to be 500 jobs available to Albertans. Um, and in the opening comments from the Stony Nakoda, um, they were like 15% of these jobs have been promised to the Stony Nakoda. So 15% of the 500 jobs were promised to members of the Sony Nakoda. And I'm like, well, what about the blood tribe, <laughs> right? Like, what is this? And then, you know, further comments were in there like, no, it's 15% of these jobs for all of Treaty 7. And, you know, we need jobs. We need jobs in our communities. Um, but these aren't the types of jobs we need. You know, I come from the blood tribe and yes, there is, you know, some of these statistics are true where First Nations people have really low levels of education and, you know, there's high unemployment rates, there's all these kinds of things. But being a member of the blood tribe, I also come from one of the most educated reserves in Canada, where we have thousands of educated blood tribe members who hold anything from a PhD to a post-secondary certificate and everything in between. So the types of jobs that are actually you know, wanted by the community are not you know, digging for coal or driving a truck or doing all these types of things. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does feel like our my First Nations government, the blood tribe is is selling a piece of my soul. And for for what? <laughs> for a job that maybe is promised, um, because there's no guarantee that Bingo will follow up on that promise as well. And when we think about economic development, it is crucial for First Nations communities that, you know, we can look at some of the statistics. Um, you know, back in 2015, the average income on the blood reserve was $20,449. Now let's compare that to the provincial average income in Alberta. The provincial average income of a general Albertan was $62,778. You know, wow. that is a third of the provincial average. You know, we can look at things like the Statistics Canada for 2016 that the unemployment rate on reserve was 22.4%. And that the provincial rate at the time was only nine, right? So it's like these, there's such a need for economic development um, on the blood tribe. There's a need for jobs. There's a need for, you know, funds and resources for community development, all of that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, what happens is that we are always handed the shitty deals, such as coal. It's here, here's the money, here's the check. And, you know, now we're signed in for this for 28 years. And we're going to be feeling the environmental impacts for three centuries. <laughs> um, so 
again, it's always caught between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, I'm not here to call down my leadership and say that they're, you know, not doing all these things. They are always stuck in that where it's like, it's this or it's that. And if we don't sign on to this, they're going to do it anyways. They're going to blow up this mine. So how can we get a little bit of financial um, benefit from it? And that, like I said, that's just the way that the system is set up to always force the hand of Indigenous people and remove that sovereignty, remove um, their abilities to, you know, govern and and practice their ways of life, really. I I, I want to move towards, uh, since you started the uh, Nitsi TP is... Um, Nitsitipi. So Nitsitipi um, okay. is our um, word in Blackfoot for, for ourselves. So it translates to kind of the real people what has reception been like on reserve um there's a lot of anger no, and frustration sorry, no. on reserve with all of this um you know when when i found out about these coal projects like I said kind of dove into research finding out more finding out like how did these letters of support come to be what is going on here um and and being who i am couldn't sit idly about it, it was like no, you know, I have children to think about. I have, you know, I'm in the process of reclaiming what it means to be a Blackfoot woman and reclaiming and that Indigenous resurgence of culture and language. And this is such a backward move for that um, by blowing up mountains. Like this is the land in which we come from as, as Blackfoot people. Um, and so it just contradicted everything that I kind of believe in both of the land and, you know, making sure that there is something to hand on to my future generations. You know, my kids are, you know, all kind of eight and under and I'm like, I'm doing this to protect my grandchildren. And they're like, we don't even have children. And I'm like, but you will someday, <laughs> um, you know, and that's when when I found out about this project. Interestingly enough, the blood tribe was actually going through elections. <laughs> Um, so we were voting in a new chief in council, all that kind of stuff was starting. And I took to, you know, social media being like, hey, Blood Tribe, have you heard about these things? And also, guess what? Chief and council signed off and have been endorsing these things without notifying us for the past seven years. Um, and also, this was all in Treaty 7, that it wasn't just the Blood Tribe leadership. You are all getting screwed here. Everybody in Treaty 7 is getting screwed by their leadership, you know that started a lot of conversation that started a lot of like frustration where people were like what <laughs> like we didn't even know about these coal projects we didn't know you know our leaders knew and never told us never consulted there was never meetings there was never a referendum about these types of things um and that you know stirred a lot of things and got people talking and then like you said there was an election going on um so kind of made it my sole mission <laughs> to make this a part of all of those conversations because of the pandemic we um you know had to innovate quickly and there was online forums for people to share their platform and part of me being in there was like tell us about Cole <laughs> like where do you stand on this and what about this consultation process and how are you going to engage the community so that this doesn't happen um and you know I was I was the person on election day when we were at the polling stations there had large signs saying like say no to the grassy mountain coal project was handing out information sheets just getting that information to blood tribe members because they have been denied and this information has been withheld for so long um you know so now that that information is kind of in the community there people are aware of the coal projects and you know it it doesn't take a scientist to see that 
these will have such negative impacts, right? Um, and so that getting that information out, um, created and it's said to be water protectors um, is kind of like a outward facing thing um, because lots of what was happening is Benga um, and the and the UCP government are going to these other communities, um, non-First Nation communities, such as all of the local municipalities in the area and being like, look at, you know, waving these letters of support, being like the Indian signed off. And if the Indians say it's good, everybody, you know, you need to sign on too. <laughs> and so Nitsitsipi Water Protectors is there to combat that and saying, no, like that is not true. We do care about the land. We do care about the environment. We do care about our people um, and like really combating that negative um, perception that is going on. Like, I feel like you climbed into my head just then because I had was literally just about to ask you about this exact thing, like how infuriating it must be when we talked about these, these leaders Aren't, aren't trying, aren't, it's not like they want to screw their own people, but they're stuck between this rock and this hard place. And so they, they hide from their people because they know nobody wants to do what they have to do. And they feel that they have to do it because you got to get a piece of a pie that's going to exist, whether you want it to or not. So it must be just beyond infuriating when sort of white leaders of the province and, and, and government and, and provincial or federal government as well, truck out these leaders as like a hey everyone they totally like see the indigenous communities totally like it they love this and it and this of course is destroy being being destroying the environment and discarding your entire culture in a way right so yeah it just like so it it makes my blood boil whenever I start to think about these coal projects. And they said, I'm I'm not here to trash my leadership. They do some really great things for the community. Um, they have done and accomplished a lot of great things. And you know, like I said, they're they're always stuck in this state of of survival, of how do we do what is best for our people in the moment. And so maybe, yeah, seven years ago, that was the state. You know, the blood tribe has been going through crisis after crisis after crisis you know the opioid crisis is severely felt on the blood tribe that we are kind of the epicenter of that um, we look at like the public housing crisis on reserve we look at water quality um you know i i grew up on the reserve and and think about your privilege right now of having running water in your home right You're, being being in a city, having running water, being able to turn on the tap and and get water that is fresh, that is cold, that is clean, um, you know that's not a luxury of most people who live on reserve. In the home that I grew up in, um, we actually had a cistern, <laughs> um, so somebody had to come with a water truck, fill up the cistern, um, and then every kind of if we were lucky, two weeks somebody would come back and refill up that cistern. Um, but sometimes there was a lot of time where we didn't have water, so it was, you know, all right, guys, let's go to town to do our laundry. Let's do this right, um, you know, and not having that water security in our homes. Um, so when we think about these projects, and maybe they're offering, you know, a million dollars, and that seems like a lot of money, but it's really not. <laughs> what is a million dollars going to do? Um, 
yeah, like it's just the it's endless here. And our leadership, like I said, is always caught in these catch-22 situations. And don't, you know, when we talk about community consultation, we see this happening across Canada. We see this in other places where it's manifesting. Um, you know, the government of Canada only the duty to consult only um equates down to consulting with tribal government and then always forcing their hand, right? Like here, we'll give you, you know, it's a mining company saying, we'll give you this check if you sign into this with us right now. But, you know, in order to get this check, you also can't speak out publicly against mining and you can't share any information with your membership. That is what goes into these confidentiality agreements between, you know, a First Nations tribal government and whatever resource extraction, you know, whether that be oil and gas, whether that be coal, whether that be logging, anything like that. That's what happens. <laughs> um, so it's always there. And then we see the community standing up, such as this saying, we were never consulted, we were never informed. Um, and we see these large things like what's happening in what's what and with the pipeline. We see these large things, what's happening um, across Canada, where on a community level, no, we don't want these projects. <laughs> um, but also we need some of these things like access to water. We need housing. We need all of these things. There's never a winning solution here. <laughs> Just to return to the um, the abandoned uh, council elections uh last year were there candidates who spoke out against the coal project um or was it a type of thing like you see in the legislature with regards to the tar sands where everyone supports it and those who don't just stay silent right was, was there significant like institutional political opposition or yeah, is there just this consensus across the political spectrum as opposed to the community that, yeah, we need this and sure, it may be bad for the future for all sorts of reasons, but this is what we got to do. Um. Yeah, so, um. well, no, so there what was really exciting as part of this election that recently happened is that environmental protection and conservation was a huge focal point of lots of people's platform i've never seen that before in our blood tribe election so we did have candidates running who were like no i am here and i want this written into our blood tribe policy that we will no longer you know stand for this we will take a stance to protect our traditional lands and territories we will take a stance to protect the environment and water and some of those candidates have gotten in um so i'm fairly hopeful that hopefully there, there is some momentum to stop these projects with our new leadership that was newly elected um and like like said so it's and when we think about on-reserve politics, it's not the same as what happens off-reserve. So, you know, you get the forum, this is what, you know, say the the mayor or, you know, the federal election, all these kinds of things. There's these large things saying, this is what we stand for, this is what we're going to do. Um, that's not what happened. That's not what happens in First Nations politics. It's really, here's me, here's what I promise, and here's the great things. And then it becomes this popularity contest for First Nations governance. Um, and it's, it's just an interesting catch-22 situation of like who ends up with the biggest family and that's who gets elected and hoping that they kind of care about what you care about, but usually not. And, you know, you look at the roster of people running, there was over a hundred people running for <laughs> Blood Drive Council. Um, 
has like a majority of the membership and the majority of the eligible voters being like, okay, so when people get elected, they're not getting elected with the majority votes. They're getting elected by like 300 votes compared to the, you know, 6,000 people that can vote. <laughs> You've seen the conversation shift around um, the Grassy Mountain Project in general and this um, removal of the coal policy that's been around for, you know, 45 years. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, you know, what Cor Blund, is, is that the uh, country singer's name? Uh, right, spoke out about this. Paul Brandt too. All of a sudden, people, <laughs> well, Terry yeah. Clark is on board now Paul too. <laughs> uh, forgotten for yeah, home. Terry Clark from the Forgotten Corner, born and raised in Medicine Hat. Go ahead. But so you you, you see these settler celebrities uh, speak out against it. And now all of a sudden people are paying attention. And I, I'm wondering what's that like from the perspective of, you know, an indigenous uh, activist like yourself. Is that is that frustrating that people really start paying attention, like off reserve when settler celebrities are speaking out about it? Or is this just something like you embrace because it means people are talking about it? I mean, from from being opposed to these coal mines, it brings a lot of awareness. There's lots of traction, you know, happening now. So personally, I'm like, all right, an ally is an ally. And right now our interests are aligned of opposing these coal projects. On the flip side, when we talk about First Nations right and this fight for sovereignty and protecting our treaty rights and inherent rights to this land and the area of land in which we are occupying, you know, that's no message that a white settler country singer can present and give. <laughs> um, so on that side of things, right, this this fight for for land and this fight for recognition of our title um, as First Nations people to the land, that's that's something that only First Nations people can do. And there's definitely places for support, of allyship and helping to elevate those voices, right? Um, but they're kind of two separate things. And right now it is all related to mining, but um, you know, so, you know, kudos for those people standing up. I'm, I'm happy for it. Let's get these coal projects not approved. Let's stop this. And on the same, on the flip side of that is these things are going to keep happening. And this erasure of indigenous voices and this idea of like consent through consultation is just going to keep happening um, unless we stop that large issue, um, you know, and really start to cause those shifts in the provincial government and on the federal level of respecting and upholding indigenous rights um, because we do have aboriginal title and rights to these lands and as treaty people in this area you know we're all treaty people here in treaty number seven is that that we need to protect those because by protecting those treaty rights we are supporting indigenous sovereignty we are supporting indigenous um self um determination and self-governance and in turn we are supporting and protecting the land because as first nations people we cannot disconnect the two as a blood tribe woman um as an insectivity person i am part of the land and these things can't be separated and by protecting you know these rights protecting these things and protecting the way of life that you know first nations people have lived in way before settlers came we live sustainably on this land we lived in harmony with the 
all of the beings in this area, not just human beings, right? We protected this land, we upheld it. Um, you know, we didn't blow things up for coal, <laughs> all of these kinds of things. It wasn't until, you know, you guys came that things kind of went down the shithole. <laughs> um, and so if we We're can- sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, I accept that apology, but also indigenous resurgence. We don't need more reconciliation. We need a uh, resurgence of indigenous governance and connections to land. Uh, so this is all kind of tying into what I wanted to say to, as we close out the show today, because if I, I like, I want to try to sort of bring this home to a common theme that we have on this show, because there's, there's so many fights out there, you guys, and it's for some, sometimes it can feel like, oh, how do you fight them all? And, and they all have a root cause a root thing and i want to get into that because you see the example i want to use you said earlier talking about clean drinking water and i believe it was jagmeet singh leader of the federal ndp party a year ago who said if this was vancouver that had no that didn't have clean drinking water how long would you fucking would people uh permit that to continue how many minutes would that be allowed before it was like i don't care how much it costs fix it now right but when it's indigenous communities and these reserves that are with facing that problem it's well we can only contribute so much money to that we can only we can only do this and we can only do that and and for the rest of us for people that out there i think this comes back to this like individualism versus collectivism idea and it's like if it's not directly affecting people it becomes harder for them to really you know you can feel bad when you hear about it you can read a story and you go oh that's fucking terrible but like how likely are you to pick up a sign and go block a railroad or do whatever it takes to try to stop some of these things and i think that like i guess i just want to try to tie this all into this you know, we have this systemic racism, systemic racism derived and fueled by this neoliberal ideology that we always talk about here. Make money, make money, make money. Throw a few pennies at the locals to save face, but profit, profit, profit. And, and, and as per usual, thanks to a lifetime of conservative rule in Alberta, the province itself doesn't even bring in enough money for it to be called embarrassing. So it's just extract, extract, extract. And this is... I believe all of this and our ignorance to it and my personal not doing enough, it all stems from the same thing. Am I making any sense? And do you guys agree with me? Yeah, it all stems from the same thing that there can be no justice on stolen land, right? That the that Canada as a whole is a nation built on the genocide and removal of indigenous people. Um, and that how can we expect justice from a system, you know, that is built on that foundation, right? Um, the government of Canada continues to act in these ways, not even just the government of Canada, but all, all of these different things and that same settler mentality of like, you know, this is now mine. And I'm like, but you stole it by extreme force and violence, right? And on, on the backs of Indigenous people. Um, and you know, I think you know you're you're talking about different things. And I I was thinking of what is his name, um, NDP MP um, Romeo Sagnash when he was in um, the House of Commons a few uh, years ago, right? And I think he said it best. <laughs> Why don't everybody, not just you know, um, Jason Kenny or Trudeau? Why don't people just come out and say what's really there is? Y'all don't give a fuck about Indigenous rights. 
And what that equates to is y'all don't care about Indians, whether they live or die. So let's blow up the mountains and just cause more of them to die. I mean, it's fucking facts. Like that's just how it is. Like it, it is, it is this pseudo caring, you know, it's the pseudo, Oh, we, Oh, we're here to protect your rights and we're trying to find new ways to be clean and all of this shit. And it's like, but really at the like fucking just economy, and this mindset of, of like being in control just trumps everything. It doesn't fucking matter. Like they can, you can put out press releases all fucking day about how you support indigenous rights. And unfortunately, especially in Alberta, a, a sad majority of white people eat that shit up. And they're like, well, yeah, like, did you hear like, the blood tribe leaders are totally down with this. So like, I don't know what the fuck Latasha's griping about. One last question. What can people do uh, to support your work? You know, I think there's, there's a lot and I'm going to sit here and preach education is that, you know, one is educate yourselves. We are all treaty people in this land. Find out what that actually means, right? Go and read the document of treaty number seven you know, look at it from an Indigenous perspective. There's lots of great resources out there that anybody can access, such as the true spirit and intent of Treaty Number 7, which is actually a book um, that was written collecting all of the Indigenous perspectives of what was truly agreed on in, in the signing of Treaty Number 7. Um, you know, talk to people. And if you don't have access to talking to people, just go outside. You know, go outside and appreciate the beauty of what is the land you know, the land of which that sustains all of us as Albertans, as anybody. You can't live without the land. You can't live without the water. And, you know, look at those things <laughs> and truly spend that time to appreciate them and not see them as commodities, not to see them as, you know, this is something that I can make money off of, but looking at the beauty in which that is there. <laughs> um, you know, there there is tons of space for, for allyship and for all of these different things and, you know, using that privilege to help elevate Indigenous voices instead of speaking for Indigenous people, right? So I'm really happy to be on a podcast where it's like, all right, here I am talking about my perspective and where I come into things, you know, instead of having, you know, some white guy somewhere else saying, oh yeah, and the Indians are fighting against something again, um, and not truly understanding what they are fighting for. Um, you know, I'm really just fighting for my right to be a Blackfoot woman and practice the ways um, that my ancestors have since time immemorial. The privilege is ours. That's a fantastic way to end the show, I think. And like I, like Jeremy said, it was a privilege and an honor for us to have you and to be able to talk about the stuff and to help you have a, a platform to spread your message and something that we all need to hear i just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today we were extremely uh entertained and 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 it felt very informed as like i learned a lot today so i really appreciate you coming on and giving us so much time today yeah thanks for having me you know um I've spent a lot of time in Medicine Hat. <laughs> I think it's a pretty cool place. I haven't forgotten that you guys exist. And, you know, in return, uh, I ask that you don't forget about the First Nations communities that have existed since time immemorial.
you know, now we got some kind of mutual relationship going on here. <laughs> well, I, we appreciate that. And you're welcome back to the show anytime. And, and we wish you luck in this fight. And uh, like I said, if there's anything that you ever need us for up from us, let us know and we'll be there for you. Um, as we end the show, I want to give you just sort of the final word, like last thing you want to say as, as we let you go to uh, our listeners and, and, and your own people as well. My final word would be um, ikakimon. And in Blackfoot, that means try hard and to kind of persevere. And so that's something I pass on to all of you is, is don't stop fighting that good fight. Ikakimon, try hard in, in what you do. Fantastically put. It's the time in our show, you guys, where we thank uh, those of our patrons who go above and beyond for everything that we could ever ask. Uh, to Chris Derwald, to Big Red Machine, to Dave Bonmiller, you guys totally pump uh appreciate everything you guys do to our anonymous folks love you guys to our other patrons love you guys as well to all our listeners thank you so much for coming um now that we're a part of the harbinger media network uh check out a couple other podcasts on that network uh, i think today we'll start with uh show giving a shout out to the alberta advantage who whose host kate jacobson is actually the one that we spoke to a long time before we even started the podcast to get uh, advice on how to get things going. So give Alberta Advantage uh, uh, a listen, you guys. And I guess uh, we'll throw Jeremy a bone here and also suggest listening to Big Shiny Takes um, with uh, a fantastic, fantastic host in Eric Brock Wickham and uh, a mediocre host in Jeremy Appel. Uh- <laughs> What about Marino? And Marino. I, well, I wanted to like save him for the, the best for last. But anyways, you right. ruined it for me. But anyways, thank you guys. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks to Latasha. Thanks to Mo. Thanks to Jeremy. We out. See you next week. Bye.